the Cambridge Film Show on Cambridge 105 Radio. You are listening to a very special Cambridge Film Show on Cambridge 105 Radio. It is the most wonderful time of the year where your favourite local film reviewers are telling you what the best films of the year were because your own tastes can't be trusted. You ought to really listen to us. It's a bit of a funny one maths-wise. We always do a top 12, not a top 10. However, this year we have three films tied for the top 10 place. So we've kind of almost got a normal top 10. I'm Ashley Whitaker. I'll be hosting this affair. You're going to hear lots of voices for the next hour. I'll keep trying to remind you who is talking so you don't get all muddled. But let's get started on our first film, Theatre Camp. Welcome, auditioners. You guys are so talented, so unbelievable. This will break you. This will fully destroy you. Congratulations on being the most talented kids at camp. Stop it. Starfish. Jiggle like a jackal. Jiggle like a jackal. These are the things we can do with masks. These people are really weird. That's a good song choice for I, I do believe her as a French prostitute. Famous. Oh, I'm sorry. Sex worker. So, Vicky and Emma, you put Theatre Camp on your lists. Let's start with Vicky telling us a little bit what it's about. Uh, Theatre Camp is about uh, the wonderful owner of this, uh, I think it's Scrappy, uh, Scrappy Theatre Camp. Um, she falls into a coma and it's left her kind of YouTube streaming bro persona son to take over what is, you know, a camp for the absolute eccentric, eclectic, uh, just um, and he just he doesn't have a clue and essentially it falls into ruin and it's just the staff trying to band together to save these you know this safe haven for a bunch of loving kids and their love for theater and hopefully there'll be a final show at the end of it sounds adorable emma theater camp did not make it into many people's lists this year why do you think that might have been so i don't think maybe enough people saw it so this is from the genius brains of ben platt and molly gordon now ben platt you'll probably know best from dear evan hansen yes and he originated that role on broadway and these guys i didn't know this until afterwards but ben platt who plays amos kabluka the um music director and yes. molly gordon is rebecca diane the movement coordinator like the thespian in yeah. charge essentially and they essentially went there as children and now they are grown up they are still teaching there mm. but in real life ben platt and molly gordon who you will probably best know as lovely lovely claire from the bear were real life la theater brats growing up together and really good friends so this is obviously ba- there's such a warmth in this film because it's based on their experiences mm. their theater camp experiences and it, it's it's funny and you you have all so you know, but the, the, um, from the bear as well, you have Io Edebiri who plays the lovely Sydney in it. It's great, um, and like and like um, like Vicky was saying, Jimmy Tatro, who is known for his own YouTube performance, kind of um, he spearheads that a little bit. He he almost satirizes himself in his role. It is warm. It is funny. More people should have seen it. It's just an hour and a half's delight. It literally awoke uh, the the repressed theatre bones within me. I have not even thought about musical theatre since the the early stages of secondary school. And I just, it came flooding back. It really is just, it's, 
it's so beloved the way that they've given everything for it. And this is Molly Gordon's directorial debut, and what a way to start! Yeah. And she, you know, spectacular, yeah, absolutely spectacular. And even though it's only a small role, um, small role, Io Adebri, Ad- uh, she really sticks out in this as just like a clueless. Uh, facilitator for masking or she's just she's just ended up there for a job she's and faked her own CV she's faked her own CV but it is everything about this is camp and hilarious it hits the nail on the head it is made for people that love theatre and, and Noah Galvin as well it's just yeah the performance in this are amazing I can't recommend it enough you've answered another one of my questions which was theatre brats are a niche kind of people they are I can say that because I am one um, and you've said it's for people who love the theatre it will drive other people up the wall I'm absolutely no, well no I would, I'd like to say I don't, think it'll, I don't think it'll drive you up the wall I think you can appreciate it. if you're a fan of things like Wet Hot, Wet Hot American Summer or other sort of gentle comedy it's pretty gentle but it also it it, it it's smart. It's smart. It's warm. It's gentle, and it it, it gives you a, it evokes a very good sense of place. Because also the casting of all the kids who are at yeah. the theater camp are also awesome. It's just hilarious. Everyone is just so. F- I don't think I've laughed more this year in this in the cinema than I did for this film, and I'm I'm just so happy it's here. I want to shout out Yusra Osman, who normally is on the show and does normally help us host a top twelve. She can't be here due to other commitments because obviously we're so close to Christmas, but she adored this film one of the reasons it's so high is she just watched it and put it slap bang at the top of her list so Yossi this is for you Yossi's number one and one of our joint 10th positions in our top 12 this year this is going to get very confusing that was Theatre Camp thanks Vicky and Emma now on to the second film which makes up one of the three which is in our joint top 10 slot I'm getting there. We have Marcel the Shell with shoes on. Tell me about what's life like. It's pretty much common knowledge that it takes at least 20 shells to have a community. My cousin fell asleep in a pocket. And that's why I don't like the saying everything comes out of the wash. Because sometimes it doesn't. Or sometimes it does. And they're just like a completely different person. So it's actually only two of us now. Myself and my grandmother, Nana Connie. We like to watch 60 Minutes because Leslie Stahl is fearless. Nana, make the noise. Luke and Mark. This again came really far down the list. I was disappointed because I loved this film. Luke, starting with you, could you tell us a bit about who's Marcel? Why is he a shell? Marcel is a... Real life shell, voiced by Jenny Slate, the comedian who co-created it with uh, her comedic partner, Dean Fleischer Camp. Um, it was birthed as a series of shorts, I believe, short films, and then they were working on a motion picture screenplay, which, when I heard about this, I was somewhat sceptical about, and because often when you, when you find a concept such as a stop motion shell in screen in big screen form you're thinking how how are they going to uh, make this something cinematic and I think that's the thing that's really charming and surprising about this film is the photography of it of a little stop motion shell um, is really wonderful to look at the way that um, they turn what's what's quite a silly character into something that's actually genuinely cinematic was a, a real surprise for me Mark, going into this, because as Luke was saying, it sounds a bit silly, doesn't it? And I think that's maybe why not a lot of people bother to go and see it. Stop motion, we don't see a lot. It presents itself as a kid's film. 
but it's really anything but. Were you surprised by how it made you feel and where the story went? I wasn't expecting it to be quite as emotional as it was. And I think it's testament to the film, when you've got such a a, a niche high concept, uh, something that is so ridiculous, the fact that you invest in the world so quickly once it starts and you know suspend disbelief so willingly uh, and go along with this, this crazy notion of this talking shell and, and the fact that talking shells just exist in the world, um, then it is just uh, utterly charming. Uh, you know, there there are some very emotional moments. Uh, it's a, a, just a beautiful little piece of, of filmmaking. Um, and yeah, because it's come from something that was that was previously made a short film, there's always that worry that maybe it's going to overextend itself at feature length as well. But no, that that didn't really feel the case either. It felt like it had a good story to tell, uh, justified its presence. Uh, lots of lovely little moments that just put a smile on my face. Yeah, there's a lot of heart here, and it's probably not surprising to learn that um, director and writer Dean Fleischer-Camp and writer Jenny Slate um, were a married couple and now separated, and they made this together and. The story is about the shell befriending a recently bereaved person for one or one way or another and building him back up. And that must be a very strange experience to tell that story with your ex-wife. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I'm quite glad that I don't have to, to do too much kind of work with my ex-wife in, in this line because, you know, we're still good friends, but it would just be very, very weird. But yeah, and something... stop motion takes a while. You're going to be in the room with her for days. Uh, yeah, so so you know, testament to them that uh, you know they they still you feel that connection coming through uh, in the writing, and you know that, that this has clearly been a passion of theirs for some time. Um, and I do hope that you know for, that they're in a good place together because I hope this isn't the last time we see Marcel because I I do think that that this is something that as a concept has more mileage in it. You know, it's it's. Uh, so charming that I, I would love to see Marcel in more adventures. Don't sleep on Marcel the shell with shoes on. I'm so sad to see it so far down our top 12 list this year. It's in joint 10th place. That was Marcel the shell with shoes on. As explained, we have three films in joint 10th place, which is technically 11th if you look into the deep maths, but I wasn't listening when that was explained to me. Um, so in 10th and 11th and 12th place, before we get to the list proper, we have Dumb Money. Yo, what up, everybody? Roaring Kitty here. I'm going to pick a stock and talk about why I think it's interesting, and that stock is GameStop. I love this guy. Retail traders have hooked into GameStop. I think they think it's a good investment. It looks like there's one guy driving all the buying. Who is this schmuck? Dumb money, man. Happy to take it. Matt. Funny title, serious premise. What goes on in Dumb Money? Yeah, the fact that it's called Dumb Money, I thought was a really... uh, clever way to sort of introduce this because to actually understand the significance of everything that happened with the GameStop scenario you actually have to be quite smart to sort of understand exactly what's going on but I don't think that's necessary to enjoy dumb money if you have any sort of appreciation for reddit humor meme culture wall street bets if any of that makes any sense then you will have a fantastic time with dumb money i describe this movie as my barbie because it's a very competent movie but i absolutely love the politics and that's why i'm extremely happy that this got into our top 12 so do you need to know anything about what happened with the GameStop fiasco stew to appreciate this 
Um, I think it sort of certainly helps a bit. I mean, uh, for myself personally, I'm a, a big gamer anyway, so I'm always really interested in, in, in what's going on in the gaming industry as a whole. And it's one of those weird moments where a store, which predominantly sells video games, is suddenly being thrust into the sort of glo- global narrative of, of global economy, politics, s- stocks, shares, Wall Street, etc. Um, and, and so it was. It was. It suddenly this little weird little news story suddenly goes viral and globes global, um, just because a very small handful of people in the grand scheme of things have taken an idea and run with it. And I think that's what makes this such a gripping story. And what make, it's very much it's, like, it's, a, it's a David versus Goliath story, uh, and it really makes you think while you're watching it. Whilst having a great cast as well so you've got your Pete Davidson's Paul Dano Vincent Stolfonio America Ferreira etc Nick Offerman Seth Rogen they really make the story come to life and they really bring great performances to the roles of what are in the grand scheme of things quite normal everyday people um, and it really sort of brings it all to life and I really enjoyed it for that and Luke, this, it was in the news. I remember it from the news. It wasn't a huge story. We have a huge cast here. Were you surprised that, firstly, they even made a film about this or that all these big names attached themselves to it? I mean, it, it was a huge story if, like, I was on Reddit every day during <laughs> lockdown. That's where you um, get your news, got it, right? <laughs> I, think, I think the appeal, most likely, is that this is uh, Craig Gillespie, who directed it, his previous film, I, Tonya, was the toast of town um, and I think similarly he's brought another very smart script here which most likely is what's attracted a wonderful cast like Stu says led by Paul Dano I think another thing that's interesting about this film that, that catches the same kind of thing of, of Itania is how complex it is in its creation of characters it would have been quite easy to have made the story and had Paul Dano who plays the the David character who's betting on these stocks and figures such as Seth Rogen who sort of played up as the uh, sort of the villain of the piece early on in the film to sort of show him purely as a, a villain to be overcome but what Gillespie brings in the same way that he brought with I, Tonya, is to show shades of characters in a way that makes the film far more complex than you, you would first um, consider when I reviewed this show um, when I was on before, um, when I, when it came out at the time, um, I sort of glibly said that the, the real villain of the piece is late-stage capitalism. <laughs> um, and it does a wonderful job of sort of making a complex story about politics and not dragging it down to being about individuals involved in that. I thought it was a, a wonderful film. So one of the joint 10th places we have on this year's top 12 list is dumb money. Thanks to Luke, Stu and Matt for that. Now all that mess of the joint 10th, 11th, 12th, whatever place films they were, let's get into the top 12 list of the Cambridge Film Show proper. In slot number nine, we have Tar. How's the writing going? Not so well. I keep hearing something... Schopenhauer measured a man's intelligence against his sensitivity to noise. Do you ever find yourself overwhelmed by emotion? Yes. Yes, it does happen. Lorcan. 
can't really tell much from that title. We have a huge director and a huge leading lady. Tell us what Tara is about. So Tara is the story of a world-renowned female composer who's kind of uh, reaching the zenith of her career, and she's starting to open up her academies to train um, uh, people that you know she identifies as upcoming talent. But through potentially her own actions or the people around her, she starts to be perceived in a different way, and it's just kind of a downward spiral as she starts. She starts kind of unraveling, and her life starts unraveling while other people start benefiting from it. And it's uh, it's from director Todd Field, who is probably most famous as Nick Nightingale in Eyes Wide Shut, the pian- uh, the jazz pianist that he took. I believe he was a bit of a protege to Kubrick in his final years, and he certainly learned a lot of very clever tricks because there's this film is very uh, cutting. It's very clever. It's very subtle when it wants to be and very unsubtle when it, when it when it wants to be as well and it's just it's just filled with beautiful cinematography beautiful music Kate Blanchett is just the expert in playing slightly mentally unbalanced uh, famous person and it's it's just so rare to see a film that's just like this expertly. He only he, his last one was Little Children, I believe, and he hasn't. This is his last one. This is his one since that. I think it's like six, seven seventeen years, years ago. Seventeen, two thousand six. Oh I my think. god! So he he makes one every every well, couple not of decades. In, not often enough. <laughs> but my god, what a powerhouse! Whenever he releases one. Emma, so we do have Kate Blanchett driving this entire thing almost single-handedly, in my opinion. Is she the best thing about it? Well, actually, Lorcan's really just stolen all my thunder by saying that oh, the, there are three really amazing things in this, I think. It's Kate Blanchett, it's Top Field's direction, and it's also the use of Berlin as like a supporting character in this and the Berlin Philharmonic and all that. I remember saying when I reviewed they may as well just wrap up the Oscar and give it to her right there and then. Mm. She was unfairly robbed, in my mind, by Michelle Yeoh. I know we all love Michelle Yeoh, but this is a performance of a lifetime so yeah she is the best thing in it but she's given great support by Nina Hoss as her wife and and there's a complex relationship there as, as things start to come out I mean this is a this is a film about consent and about abuse and about bullying and about talent and about genius and about how we how much maybe it, it, it it's just I didn't know what I was gonna expect and it, it it's brilliant and it, it keeps there are there are certain scenes that just replay over and over again so you kind of see the breakdown of this woman's routine of this genius woman's routine but you can say it's like ever circular it is a really really clever film and matt why did tar make your top 12 list this year i just absolutely love the uh, love movies about deeply unsympathetic characters but you're not kind of beaten around the head with it and you're sort of left to come up with your own reasons i think by the end of the film everyone who's watched it will will realize that she's a deeply awful person but you'll sort of come to that realization at your own moment because the film starts and you think wow she's charismatic smart incredibly talented and then as you see the ways in which she abuses her position for her own benefit you'll sort of gradually come to the realization of what a horrible human she is yourself and uh, it's yeah great seeing Kate Blanchett get to play this kind of role she's just so magnetic and fantastic there are scenes where she'll sort of switch between English and German and they don't even subtitle it because she's just sort of speaking incomprehensible music speak that us mere mortals can't help but understand in any language but yeah, you just enjoy the act of watching her, even if you don't understand what she's actually saying. Yeah, I'm surprised this wasn't higher in her list. This was a clear standout for me as number one film of last year. It's an excellent piece of filmmaking. It also has the most ex- 
excellent ending of any <laughs> film last year. It's so Somewhat good. divisive amongst the team. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I seem to remember that. <laughs> On that bombshell, that was Tar in our number nine slot. Thank you to Emma, Lorcan and Matt. Perhaps surprisingly, in the number eight slot of the Cambridge Film Show's top 12 of the year, you would have seen this film absolutely everywhere. It's Barbie. Hey, Barbie. Can I come to your house tonight? Sure. I don't have anything big planned, just a giant blowout party with all the Barbies and plant choreography and a bespoke song. You should stop by. So cool. You can find me under the lights, diamonds under my eyes. This is the best day ever. It is the best day ever. So is yesterday, and so is tomorrow, and every day from now until forever. Yeah. You guys ever think about dying? Is Barbie if you're still in doubt? Mark, as if we didn't know who Barbie was already, tell us what the film's about. Uh, it's one of those big surprises that something which could have just been an opportunity to cash in on merchandise and try and sell a few more toys is actually a, a real examination of identity and who we are and uh, a, a real celebration of so many things. Uh, but this is from Greta Gerwig and Noah Baumbach, who wrote the script together. And my relief when I saw Greta Gerwig's name attached to this, knowing how good she'd been with uh, Lady Bird and Little Women. Uh, and uh, this is not quite at the level of those two for me, but it's still a fabulous film which starts off in the world of Barbie and then enters the real world and sees the culture clash. And for me, the highlight of that is watching Ryan Gosling wandering around in the real world, uh, which I could not get enough of, frankly. Vicky, child of the 90s, I assume raised with our favourite plastic ladies. What did this film mean to you? Uh, the absolute world. Um, you know, I went in there for the first time and had a great time. I just all the jokes landed for me. I was, you know, just the, they did the costumes, they did the sets right, and that's what you want from this film. You want when you see these adaptations nowadays, and they don't go as full out as the cartoons or as the the toys themselves. Um, you just need that kind of color and excitement. And then the second time, I think everything sank in a little bit deeper a little bit more um definitely just as a, a general woman um it, this film was really important and all the songs to go along with it and there's just a story there and i have cried twice now watching this not that it's hard uh but this film just yeah it's it's one of the film experiences that i don't think i'll ever forget and definitely seeing it in the theater and being in the cinema it's just one of those things I'll look back on of being an actual phenomenon and just bringing people into the cinema, which I couldn't ask for more, really. Emma, it was a phenomenon, arguably the biggest film of the year. It's sitting at number eight on our list. Why did it make yours? It made mine because exactly as Mark and Vicky have said, I actually rate this above any other of Greta Gerwig's films. I had a better time in this than any other of her films I've seen. I didn't love Little Women, Women that much, so I wasn't terribly excited going into this. And obviously it's hard to talk about Barbie without talking about the fact that it was Barbenheimer. And I think it probably did. It, the marketing behind Barbie was absolute genius and then thank goodness the film lived up to that genius and in itself was as Mark said it is a comedy but it says things about the world today it says things about consumerism it also 
it, which I wasn't expecting at all, has it when they enter the real world. It has this whole kind of half story, which is led by Will Ferrell, I think, quite deliberately. And it has touches of Elf, which is one of our most beloved family movies in there. This is a family movie. I saw it twice. I saw it once on opening day. And then interestingly, I saw it in Malaysia in a packed screening with women just in pink hijabs coming in with their husbands. There was such joy to be found in every screening I think I saw of this film. But it had a real point to make. And I think as a woman, as a mother... As yeah, as you know, as a as a feminist, as as a daughter, it 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 covers all those points, and it 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 was wonderful, wonderful. Mark and funny. As a heterosexual man of your age, what's in it for people like you? Uh, it's just pure joy, frankly. You know, I don't think you have to be pigeonholed in a particular demographic to really get a lot from this if you're just willing to open yourself up to the experience. And I'm not sure we've mentioned the soundtrack yet. Dua Lipa's Dance Tonight is my second most played track of the year on my uh, my playlist. You know, uh, and Billie Eilish's song was fantastic as well. The, the Ken song has done really well. Uh, there's, ju- there's just a film rammed full to the gills with joy. What not to love for anyone, frankly, that- in this? That is true. We all. The only thing I would have said is I wish they'd actually had the guts to make it into a proper musical. Two more musical numbers, and this would have been a full musical because yeah, the choreo in it is also spectacular. So at number eight in our top twelve list, that was Barbie. Thank you to Emma, Vicky, and Mark. At number seven on the Cambridge Film Show top twelve list this year, we have Past Lives. What a good story this is childhood sweethearts who reconnect 20 years later and realize they were meant for each other. In the story, I would be the evil white American husband standing in the way of destiny. Shut up. He was just this kid in my head for such a long time. I think I just missed him. Did he miss you? His arm! Vicky, could you tell us a little bit about this lovely story? Um, This is a story of a heart, it's a heartbreaking story at at its core, but it's about um, uh, it's about identity. It's about a, a woman who you know she's immigrated from Korea. She's gone to Canada. She's now in New York. Um, it's about reuniting with her childhood friend, uh, what once was romantic wise, or what could have been, and just uh, it's about choices in life and where they take you. And yeah, it's a very beautiful love story, I would say. Emma, it seems a very simple premise, but people have been raving about it. It's made it to number seven on our list above huge films. Why do you think this touched so many people? Because it is a beautiful vignette of a story, but also it is so confidently and gorgeously directed by Celine Song, who is never afraid to linger on a face for as long as she needs to, so you can read the emotion, and is blessed, particularly, I think, in Greta Lee playing Nora, with one of the most incredibly emotive faces to be able to rest upon. As Vicky said, it is this idea that, you know, Nora has left South Korea at, at the age of 10. She she goes to Canada, she goes to New York. She's married John Magaro, another delightful performance by Arthur Zataransky. And yes, she's married him for a green card partly, but there is also a real love in that relationship. So there is, although she's married him for, for immigration purposes, it's also they have their own relationship. Into this comes Jung Hae Sung, played by Chi Yu, who, who comes back to find her to see. And you, you're kind of rooting for all of them and none of them and, and all of them. You don't know how this wants to end and however it ends, it's going to break your heart in some way, but it's also going to lift you up in some way. Mark, sounds complicated. Is is that one of the reasons it made it to your list? It keeps you so gripped trying to figure out what's going on? 
I think actually it's got a really clean story structure when it comes down to it. Uh, you know, it, this could have been fiendish and complicated, but it's just a, a beautiful, tender, heartfelt piece of storytelling. And I think it speaks to something in all of us. You know, they, they, I can't think there's any one of us that doesn't look back at certain things in their life without wondering how things might have been differently or, you know, how, how things could have turned out. And, you know, I was chatting with Vicky uh, uh, just after the film had been released and wasn't sure how it would play to someone younger. You know, I, I, I've piled up quite a lot of... Uh, regret and reflection on things in my life and it, it spoke to me significantly but I was so relieved to hear uh, that, that Vicky had a, a very similar experience with it um, despite having slightly less life experience than me in the nicest way possible being young and not that I'm jealous um, <laughs> but but yeah it is my film of the year it is uh, just uh, so beautiful I look forward to re-watching it many many times in the years to come and to what Celine Song does right because this is her directorial debut and that yeah. blew me away because like I say the confidence to make this a film of this beauty it, it's, she, it's truly about identity and it is about her story and I think that's why it's so good it's because it's close to her and it's a real you know it's a labour of love and it's quite it's insane how vulnerable you'd have to be to make something like this and that really comes across same as Mark this is my film of the year I'll never forget watching this and then taking some friends and making them watching us and just cr- like kind of crying at the end or it's just it's a whopper if it leaves on your chest you can feel it afterwards and yeah everything about it is just incredible of all those people you um took with you for multiple viewings then vicky across the board tens it tens and a lot of people looking like why have you just made me experience that you know <laughs> but also just they appreciate it because you you kind of need to let some of these like strains or stress out and this film just leaves you kind of bare like you just get laid bare by this so maybe a proceed with caution in the best possible way in number seven on our top 12 list this year. That's Past Lives. Thanks, Mark, Vicky and Emma. You are listening to the Cambridge Film Show and we are halfway through our top 12 of 2023 in slot six on that list. It's all the beauty and the bloodshed. Dance, dance, dance. Talk, talk, talk. The photographer Nan Golden. She's a major name in the art world. The work was incredibly political. Probably my whole life, the struggle to fight conformity and denial. A hundred thousand dead! A hundred thousand dead! Matt, this is a documentary, the only documentary to make it into the top 12 this year. Could you tell us what All the Beauty and the Bloodshed is about? There's been a lot of focus in pop culture at the moment about the opioid crisis in America. I think just off the top of my head, there was Dope Sick and Pain Hustlers, and I think there was Painkiller as well. And this is the sort of real-life impact of what the Sackler family have done to vast numbers of Americans who were in desperate need of medical help and were instead hooked on a very dangerous substance. So... I just thought it was fascinating to just see firsthand what exactly they did and who this Nan Golden person was who was fighting against it and all of the incredible work she did to sort of help raise awareness of the awful things that they've done and just yeah bring bring this to the real forefront of public awareness. Vicky, yes, you have said that you could go on about this 
forever. We don't have forever, I'm afraid. <laughs> so Could true. you give us the abridged version? Yes. Um, I saw this, luckily, at Cambridge Film Festival in 2021. Had no idea what I was going into. And now I know a lot about Nan Golden, the artist, the filmmaker, the woman that she is. She basically documents herself across two separate periods of time in her youth in the New York AIDS crisis and then in current time fighting against the Sacklers and honestly I her life is just made to be shown because and there was not one point where I was like thinking oh this is like dull in any kind of case she really had me absorbed and cared I really cared about what she was saying and what was happening and the people that are involved in her life in both points and I just you've come out it's it's like you've I've read a novel about her but I just in the most compact form um yeah this this film and documentary is really incredible and eye-opening and I just I'll never go into a museum and not spot the suckling now I've seen it a few times in London and it's just so informative about just what is going on and I, I just wouldn't have known until I got introduced to her and I think she's genuinely incredible for putting this out there Mark, as Matt mentioned, we've heard the Sackler family story quite a few times in the last year or so. What made this one so special for you? It made your list this year. I think because it works so well as not only an examination of the current issues and the need for change around what's come out of the opioid crisis, but also as a reflection on Nan Golden's career as well. It brings those two things together so effectively, forms a portrait of a a woman and the way in which she developed as an artist and actually why she then becomes such a crucial figure in in doing this and why what her motivations were but actually you get a real insight into to her career through this you get a real insight into this world of art and how sometimes you know big galleries are just willing to take the money because they want to make sure that things still happen and actually the the fact that that if people are willing to put their minds to it we can affect social change we can affect positive change uh, if there are injustices there uh, you know and it, it's a film that ultimately gives hope uh, as as well as being an incredible insight documentaries are often kind of poo-pooed by some people they never want to go and see them despite the story because they don't enjoy that kind of filmmaking this is directed by Laura Poitras who is an Oscar winner how did she manage to tell that story and keep everyone plugging along with her for the hours about an opioid crisis? I think there is... You don't want it to be hard-hitting throughout every single scene, otherwise it's too much. She really balances out what is... Like the Nan Golden story, that even though there's a lot going on in New York, you see joy and like pure elements of what it's like to be surrounded by a found family, and that like even in the opioid crisis, they have she has a group, and that group is doing a lot for the just a lot for people that need it, and there's just real elements of what like of joy and friendship and happiness through what is terrible terrible times but I think uh, the conclusion when it was coming to the end it was coming to the end of what Nan Golden sees her life as now there's a there's a video call of the sentencing of the, the not really the sentencing but the the Sackler family having to listen to families that have went through it and I have never my oh, my heart dropped and it only happens like a few times but she really hits the point across and to see that in any documentary there's always that point where it hits the real hard subject and she's just very good at getting that across. In slot six of our top 12 this year that was all the beauty and the bloodshed. Thank you to Vicky, Matt and Mark.
In slot number five of the Cambridge Film Show's top 12 of the year, we have Killers of the Flower Moon. Those days are the finest, wealthiest, and most beautiful people on God's earth. They outsmart everybody. They have the say. Who gets the oil? Son, I got a question. You like women? <laughs> That's my weakness. <laughs> well, we mix these families together, and that estate money flows the right direction. It'll come to us. Shomikasi. That's how you are. I don't know what you said, but it must have been Indian for handsome devil. <laughs> <laughs> Emma, Martin Scorsese's latest film, What is Killers of the Flower Moon about? Okay, so this is based on the book by David Grant of the same name, Killers of the Flower Moon, and he um, co-wrote it with Scorsese and also Eric Roth. And it is a true story that really is a blight upon American history of this century, let's say, let's say of the um, Syria, the systematic killing that happened to the Osage nation when they discovered oil on their land in the 1920s. But due to sort of antiquated what they were called head rights, they still had to have white guardians to be able to, uh, you know, to be able to access the money and that, that came from the oil on their land. And like I say, obviously when people coming back from the war or when white Americans realised how much money was involved, there was a lot of, shall we, shall we say, tragic accidents reached these these people. So we take it from Leonardo DiCaprio's character who has just come back from the war and he's come to work with his uncle played by Robert De Niro. So this is Ernest Buckhart and Robert De Niro plays a character called William King Hale. And through, what, through one reason or another, Leonardo DiCaprio en- ends up marrying Lily Gladstone who has a large, you know, she, she's got some head rights on a nice, decent Parcel of land along with her mother and her four sisters. One by one, the sisters die, the mother dies, and Lily Gladstone, who's now Lily Buckhart, married to Ernest. It's a story of their marriage, the gaslighting. It's also, I mean, it felt, I mean, it is a massively long film, as everyone knows, three and a half hours. And part of it is because it's stuffed with so much of Martin Scorsese's favourite things to talk about. It's the history of America. It's the, you know, it, it, it's the the corruption at the birth of a century if you like and it also tells the story of the birth of the FBI because this was actually the first case that the FBI were called into after everyone else had been ignoring it for years the newly formed FBI led in this by Jesse Plemons comes in to to you know to actually find out what's going on Matt it's a violent hard story to watch it's a long one at nearly three and a half hours what made this an enjoyable cinema experience then the thing I loved about this is just it's just great to see cinema for grown-ups. I mean, we complain a lot about this show, and I complain as well, about films being too long and saying, oh, I just, I just want things to be a brisk 90 minutes. But this really showed to me that time is relative. Three and a half hours can fly by if the story is gripping, if the characters are well-drawn, if the setting is immersive, as this was. When this film started, I, I didn't know much about it, but and it, it's such an unusual setting because the white characters are almost subservient in in the traditional sort of um, servant roles as opposed to the Native Americans who have all the, seemingly have all the power in this society, although all is not quite as it seems. And I, when it was finished, I was like, well, I feel like this could have been longer, make it four and a half hours because the the film finishes with a sort of radio show wrap-up of some other very interesting things that we could have seen. So, yeah, that was what I really took from this, that if a film is gripping you, then it can be as long as, long as it wants and you still are desperate for more. Mark, 
what place did this take on your top 12 this year? Uh, this was number four for me on the list. And, yeah, in terms of Martin Scorsese's recent career, I look back over the last 10 years and we've had The Wolf of Wall Street, Silence, my favourite film of, of 2018, The Irishman, and and now this. And it's as good a run of filmmaking as anyone has ever produced. And, you know, would these films all actually make it into Martin Scorsese's kind of top ten of his films? You know, this, I think, sums up why he is probably the most important filmmaker of the last couple of generations. He's at the peak of his powers. This has a, a breadth and a scope uh, that's not always apparent in his films, but it still resonates. Uh, the, the crime drama elements remind me of Goodfellas and The Irishman in certain ways as well. And just everything about this works. Um, if Lily Gadsden doesn't win all the awards for her quietly devastating performance, um, there is no justice justice in the world and does leonardo dicaprio's little affectation take you out of it no, or was that cute it didn't it's neither cute nor did it take it out of me i think it's very very clever because you kind of see the corruption entering his soul as the film goes on and yeah while it's hard sometimes to, to look at leonardo dicaprio and forget you're watching leonardo dicaprio the way he gradually begins to look more and more like robert de niro playing his incredibly evil uncle i mean he is the real bad and it but it's it's an excellent performance for me in Caprio because you remain sympathetic for some time and you're not even entirely sure. And that is, a, 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 well, I did anyway. <laughs> and you really shouldn't be, but there, that, that is a sign, I think, of Leonardo DiCaprio's charisma and it, it both it, it, all three like Mark said Lily Gadstone is the, is the heart of this movie but Robert De Niro and Leonardo DiCaprio are, and Jesse Plemons as well or it is it is a film of great performances and it looks incredible so do see it on a big screen if you could have done it looks spectacular and fascinating to me of DiCaprio that he was actually offered the Jesse Plemons role initially and yes. then turned it down and and took the uh, the more Weasley nephew role. Uh, you know, this weird contorted expression on his face for most of the film. Also uh, a fatter role, though, to be fair. I guess if you were Leonardo DiCaprio, it's like, you know what, I'll take the lead, thanks. <laughs> yeah, so, so but, you know, he, he again, brings something new to it. Uh, he, you know, he's been in, in more Scorsese films than anyone except uh, Robert De Niro. And actually seeing the two of them on screen together is just such a joy as well. Sitting at number five in our list of 12 films, that's Killers of the Flower Moon. Thanks, Mark, Matt and Emma. We are getting towards the top of our list of the top 12 films of the year, according to the reviewers of the Cambridge Film Show. In at number four, it's Guardians of the Galaxy, Volume 3. We were gone for quite a while. But no matter what happens next... The galaxy still needs its guardians. Hello, we come in peace. <laughs> come on, Drax. Seriously, dude? No, dude, no, no! Lorcan. Yes. You know I don't do superheroes or Marvel or anything. Yeah. Help me out. What's this about? I don't really do them either. It's weird to have a big kind of blockbuster action film in the top 10, but it's for me and I think for a lot of people, this is the end of Marvel MCU. Like it's, I think it was originally supposed to come out before Endgame and Infinity War and all that stuff, I think. Um, but like by, by the end credit sequence of this and you're just, you're just crying and you're singing and you're dancing in your chair and you're like, it's done. We did it. We ended MCU and what a beautiful, lovely, after 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 note to leave the franchise on um it's just the film comes with the story obviously james gunn has a lot of history with disney he came from very bizarre startings became an indie filmmaker got adopted by kind of joss whedon and, and marvel 
was put through the ringer multiple times, went over to DC. And so this is that it's it's the whole that all does play into the plot as well, I think, a little bit, his experiences and how he views Disney and kind of corporate culture. But more than anything, it's just such a delightful, lovely send-off to all these characters, which I'm sure we'll see many of them again, but just not in this capacity or to the standard. Matt, are you deep in the Marvel Cinematic Universe? Is this your religion, or did you just dip into this for a bit of fun? I admit this might sound quite ridiculous, but I don't consider myself a Marvel fan, despite the fact I've seen all the Marvel movies, some of them multiple times. But I think the best Marvel movies are the ones where a strong director can really stamp their own vision and get away from the sort of cookie-cutter Marvel template that we do see quite a lot where... I feel like a lot of Marvel films these days feel like an expensive episode of a TV show. This really doesn't, and it's. I think it's rare that the third entry in a trilogy is the best, and that's how I felt about this. Every element of this movie worked brilliantly. The soundtrack is just phenomenal, as as they have been in the previous two Guardians movies. The the villain of the High Evolutionary, uh, Chukwudi Iwuji, is just gloriously chewing the scenery throughout which was great. Uh, all of the stuff with uh, Rocket Raccoon being experimented on was just perfect emotional manipulation, guaranteed to have people in floods of tears. Um, Batista as Drax, uh, I th- think he's a fantastic comic presence, and sad we're not going to get any more of him. Yeah, this, this didn't really feel like an MCU movie to me, which is perhaps why I liked it so much. Emma, you've a house full of the kinds of people these kinds of films seem to be targeted (laughs) at. What did they make of this in terms of it being a great Marvel film or yeah cool another one no it was it, it was more it was more to all of us than yeah another one and like you say I put this as my top of the list but that's partly because it was probably my most it was my most enjoyable cinema experience this year not the best film if you like but you know this is the end of 12 to 15 years I would say of me and my boys going to watch my and the whole family going to watch the Marvel films and I mean no one gave you actually a background in it so I don't know if you're confused but these are the Guardians of the Galaxy who are this mist you know this mismatched bunch I of idiots and troopers who are coming in there's all kinds of like sidelines going on about you know Chris Chris Pratt playing Peter Quill Star Lord's kind of thwarted romance with um, Nebula not Nebula Gamora because obviously she doesn't remember anymore that they were in love but it is it is really Rocket Raccoon's backstory and it is told so beautifully and Bradley Cooper I think is is an amazing an amazing rocket raccoon and like like Matt said you end up in pieces but there's also incredible scenes there's a brilliant sort of flesh planet halfway through it really (laughs) echoes James Gunn has got this passion for sets that echo like real physical sets and not maybe the CGI that we got used to seeing and doing Shang-Chi or Black Panther or there were a lot of MCU films that came out before this but like I said this is a James Gunn film more than more than an MCU film but it's also an MCU film and it came with all the bells and whistles and emotion and laugh that comes from actors who respect their director, directors who respect their actors, and all put together into a, into, you know, in, 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 to, to really win. It was brilliant. One of my big problems with MCU movies is they tend to devolve into a big CGI mess at the end, whereas this ended with, I think, one of the best action scenes of the year, mm. where the Guardians just get to massacre a whole corridor full of poor guards to a bit of Beastie Boys and it's just absolutely phenomenal and it's all one shot and the the camera's sort of zooming around focusing on different characters getting to do their special team up moments and it's just fantastic apparently that was the last thing they filmed as well because they knew it would be so much fun to do together 
Now I'm going to cry even more. Now you're going to send me out of here crying. And I can safely say I think we're all quite excited to see what James Gunn is going to do with Superman, which is something I never thought I'd say because yeah, Superman of, does not excite me. A lot of naysayers, but I'm excited. Well, the thing is, Superman is an immigrant. And if you can, can think of something interesting to do that sort of plays into all the... Um, sentiment around immigrants in the world at the moment then there's definitely scope to really amaze people throw in some super cute big-eyed animals that are being you know horrifically treated as well and you're onto a winner so a bit of a tearjerker there in slot number four on our top 12 list that's guardians of the galaxy volume three thanks to emma lorcan and matt you are listening to the Cambridge Film Show and it is our extra special end of the year shebang when we list the top 12 films of the year as according to all our viewers. You've joined us at just the right, most exciting time. We're about to head into the top three of 2023. Coming in third place, Oppenheimer. We're in a race against the Nazis. And I know what it means. If the Nazis have a bomb. Have a 12-month head start. 18. How could you possibly know that? We've got one hope. All America's industrial might and scientific innovation connected here. A secret laboratory. Keep everyone there until it's done. Let's go recruit some scientists. Luke, if people aren't familiar with that surname, tell us what Oppenheimer's about. Well, yes, if you if you don't know what Oppenheimer is by the end of uh, 2023, where have you been living this year? I mean, it's, it's the film of the, the year in terms of the scope. It's the story of J. Robert Oppenheimer, the inventor of the atomic bomb. Um, and I think when we all heard about this story, we thought, is Christopher Nolan just going to be making a straight-up biography about a man who built a bomb and naturally being Christopher Nolan is is more complicated than that. We have this twin narrative structure that weaves both the building of the atomic bomb and the aftermath of it to create a a film that I think many people have been left to think is too complicated and difficult and wondering why there's bits in black and white Um, and other people such as myself who say it's the film of the year. Mark, a tiny check in the no box um, for Christopher Nolan was that his female characters weren't as well used as others but can you tell me a bit about who's acting in this who they are how they all work together it is quite the ensemble cast uh, there are a few standouts in this i think Killian murphy obviously is as, as jay robert oppenheimer robert downey jr gets a, a reasonably meaty role as well involved in the the legal processes that are going on afterwards and trying to understand uh, the the aftermath of what's happened um everyone probably gets their moment uh, but the likes of uh, emily blunt and florence Pugh, uh, those moments are are shortened well, we're not going to say sweet, but uh, yeah, they, they are certainly not the focus of the film. And I can understand if some people might feel disappointed in the lack of balance in that. But for me, uh, the, the propulsive narrative that, that Nolan is telling here doesn't really have time to, to get into too much of any of that. It's another film we've talked about that's a three-hour film that absolutely whizzes by for me. And by the time we reach the actual countdown to the bomb itself, genuinely fingernails gripped into the the arm of the seat it was uh, the most tense moment of the year even though you know exactly what's going to happen a bomb is going to explode and being christopher nolan he actually made a bomb and blew it up and that's why i love him Stu, i know you well you love a superhero you love big explodey things 
I'm surprised to see this so high up on your list because you have to wait a long time for the big explodey thing. As we've just mentioned, it is a long, quiet, dark film in places. What kept the King of Marvel gripped throughout Oppenheimer? I have to admit the big exploding moment in Oppenheimer was underwhelming for me. It, given the fact it's supposed to be an atomic bomb, it was it was done quite stylistically and artistically, which I appreciated, but it wasn't what I imagined I was going to get given the sort of the long wait for it. Now, don't want to focus too much on that one little exploding bit. I wasn't there only for that, but I've particularly enjoyed um, learning so much about the history uh, of Oppenheimer, so much more about the Second World War, which I wasn't previously aware of. I particularly enjoyed the performances we mentioned before. I hear, I understand that Robert Downey Jr. was rumoured to be in the runnings for an Oscar, perhaps for his performance as Louis Strauss, um, which was good for me because I really enjoyed that little bit towards the end of the film where it focuses a lot on perhaps the the post-war McCarthyism era when they're talking about the sort of the post-war is 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 um, Oppenheimer a communist and all that sort of stuff, which I didn't know anything about either. So for me, like so many of the sort of the historical sort of dramatized biopics we've seen this year, for me it was a huge educational experience. I've always known a little bit about the history of X, Y, and Z. These films are really fleshing it out for me with the understanding there are some creative liberties in there. Sometimes those creative liberties fall short on explosions. <laughs> it's been described by quite a lot of people as a, a film of three acts, very distinct parts of um, Oppenheimer's life and career. Would you say that they're all equally interesting and gripping and that they all go well together? Or was that maybe distinct acts on purpose? I would say, I mean, there's a lot of the talk about this film is about the bomb. And as you discussed, the bomb is only one of three sections of the film. And in fact, arguably, the least interesting part of the film. Um, Christopher Nolan's always been a director, at least in some of his more recent films, he's been accused more of, sort of making puzzle boxes more than films to sort of unlock and everything comes together in the final act. This is perhaps the the most straightforward of his films in terms of each section of the film is coherent and tells a bio- biography, mostly in narrative order. Um, but I think what you get out of this film is both the best of a Christopher Nolan film. I mean, he's always been considered a great director of spectacle rather than performance. But you do get performance in the the first and final sections of this this film are heavily led by people in rooms talking, which is a, a strange break for, for Nolan. And I think they, they come together and, in fact, maybe the the strength of the film. I mean, the, the, we talk about the, the way in which Nolan structures his films as well. You, know, you think things like Dunkirk, which had the different speed narratives of things happening at different rates. We've got the black and white and colour sections here as well. But one of Nolan's gifts for my money is the way he can just take little moments that, that weave through all those complicated structures and stand out in their simplicity. And for me, that moment here is a, a brief conversation uh, that uh, Oppenheimer has with Einstein, played by Tom Conti, rather unlikely. But there we go. Uh, he loves some of this this weird throwback casting in his films as well as Nolan. And uh, yeah, the, the nature of that conversation is only revealed at the very denouement of the film. And actually, uh, it just carries so much weight uh, and, and brings everything together that's happened before so beautifully. In third place on the Cambridge Film Show's top 12 list of 2023, we had Oppenheimer. Thanks to Luke, Stu and Mark. 
We are getting tantalizingly close to you finding out which film the Cambridge Film Show reviewers voted as the best of 2023. But before we get there, in second place, Babylon. What do you say we come in for my close up now? What are your thoughts for the future? Shouldn't stand in the way of progress. This is going to be what it's going to be. Here's the twist. Whoa! The girl seems nice. She is. She has no idea what's next. Lorcan, even if you've seen the trailer, even if you read a little about it, this is a hard film to conceptualize in words. Can you have a go for us, though? What's Babylon about? Um, so effectively, it's using the golden age Hollywood as kind of a mirror for stuff that's happening now, and also a bit of a nostalgia trip for I don't know, just people's behavior back then, stuff like that. It's a very extravagant, wild night out. It's a three-hour epic, and it is epic. Um, there's so much in it to digest, but the main takeaways are you'll have an absolute blast. All the performances are pitch perfect, and they gel so well together. And there's really striking commentary about you know like how back back in the day it was the Hollywood was like doors are open to everyone, everyone as long as you've got talent will take you and will shine a light on you and you will give you opportunities and that's very much something that Damien Chazelle's carried through in all of his movies the idea of like if you're good work hard and you'll get it and then how whenever Hollywood starts getting kind of morally superior that's when art kind of gets very restricted and um, contrived and then you know bad things happen to the people involved in those studios but it's it's just it's a massive love letter to cinema there's so many I hate to use the word easter eggs in this sense it's a very film nerdy film with so many references and callbacks and a, lo- a lot of people were turned off by the final scene I thought it was fantastic Damien Chazelle has a, a diverse back catalogue we've got things like Whiplash Cloverfield Lane but then La La Land that big songy dancey set piece that everyone loves from 2016 Emma given you know Damien Chazelle for La La Land, pr- probably f- the best. And you're maybe expecting a big song and dance feature out of a film like Babylon set in the golden age of Hollywood. Did you miss a bit of that or was it a brilliant, huge set piece without too many musical numbers? Well, let's not forget he made First Man as well, didn't he? In between mm. La La Land and Babylon, he brought out this story about Neil Armstrong, which was different. I mean, he, I think he's a really interesting director and he's gone to so many different places and La La Land was not really what I would consider musical anyway. I didn't know what to expect from Babylon and I think it was badly marketed and I don't think enough people saw it because I think this was obviously before Killers of the Flower Moon came out and proved that you can do three and a half hours if you want to. I think people were put off by the running time, but it is an orgy of, of excess and I didn't miss the song and dance because in some ways like three you have about three or four really big set pieces in this you have the massive party at the beginning mm. you have this insane bit in the middle where Margot Robbie goes to another party and wrestles a snake and, and, and Eric Roberts pops yeah. up as her dad which is awesome then you have this whole bit at the end with Toby Maguire as like the evil face of Hollywood there's a lot there's a it fits it throws so much at its canvas and I don't necessarily think that everything sticks and I had to watch it twice to get at least twice I like my maybe see it three times I mm. watched it at least twice because on first viewing you're so overwhelmed that you have to go back to it but as a 
piece of filmmaking as a bravura paced piece of filmmaking like nothing I've seen before mm. I thought it was brilliant and having people like Brad Pitt Margot Robbie Gene Smart Olivia Wilde you can go you can list them all but um, Brad Pitt does some really good work in this as well mm. I think Brad Pitt in his latter you know in his latter stage of his career is, is producing some of his absolute finest work this film Babylon's just absolutely debaucherous in every kind of sense of the world and like Emma mentioned everyone is giving the performance of their lives along with uh, Justin Hurwitz composed this and this soundtrack is it's like EDM slash composed with different all these kind of classical instruments and I just felt I was on a ride like like the kind of adrenaline just didn't stop for me throughout the whole three hours whether that's ups or downs I literally have been taken on a whirlwind through a whole decade of cinema Stuart we have kind of a mismatch of big names playing big characters each with their own stories but they, they meet each other along the way. You've got Brad Pitt, who's aging out of his career. Margot Robbie's the brand new young starlet. And then um, Diego Calva as Manny Torres is kind of watching everything from the sidelines. Did any one of those major storylines grip you the most? Was there a, a natural lead here? Was there a natural lead? I, th- I think because of the amount of narratives going on there, I don't think it really it would be fair to say that there was a natural lead. There was so much going on and not it wasn't oversaturated as, as a result. I really enjoyed watching effectively three different stages of these careers running alongside the the history of Hollywood as it were everything from the silent movies to the talkies through to colour and I thought they really complemented really well um, there were some tragic ends there were some disappointing ends and there were some just some real you could see the characters sort of sit some of them ended up seeing where they'd ended up towards the end of their careers or or, or even when they're at the peak of their careers that sometimes being at Hollywood particularly in those formative years, wasn't all it was cracked up to be. It was really sort of a a damning experience in many ways for them. It's the height of success. It's very much once you get to the top, where else is there to go other than down? And you saw that happen a lot on the screen. What I particularly enjoyed as well, sort of talking about the technology of going through the talkies and everything, as well as seeing that big old sequence at the end, very sort of Stanley Kubrick 2001 A Space Odyssey before they cut to that final scene in the cinema. That was particularly impressive for me. It it sort of came out of the blue and I really enjoyed that too. I was just going to say, I really like the fact that this came number two on our show, which is after all a film review show. And I feel like it probably won't pop up at number two on very many people's Mm. list this year. But we are at the end of the day people who love film. We love going to the cinema. And like Lorcan said, this is a love letter to all of that. So good on us. (laughs) Good on us for bringing it the love it deserves as cinema lovers. And I was going to close out with Lorcan, cinema big in your personal and professional life. Why did Babylon make your list? Uh, it's an absolute feat of filmmaking. It's a wild ride. Uh, and I can't wait to go back to that world as soon as I can. Didn't quite make it to the top, but at number two of the Cambridge Film Show's top 12 films of the year, that was Babylon. Thanks to Emma, Lorcan, Vicky and Stu. You have made it. Thanks for sticking with us this far. Let's do a rundown of the top 11 films of this year before we reveal what made it in the number one spot. Joint 10th, we had three films. Theatre Camp, Marcel the Shell with Shoes On and Dumb Money. Number nine was Tar. Coming in at number eight was Barbie. Slot seven was filled with Past Lives. Number six was All the Beauty and the Bloodshed. Number five, Killers of the Flower Moon. In fourth place... Guardians of the Galaxy, Volume 3. Third place went to Oppenheimer. 
and just shy of the top spot, number two was Babylon. Coming in at number one, the top film of 2023 as voted for by the Cambridge Film Show reviewing team, Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse. I'll take it from here. Miles, being Spider-Man is a sacrifice. You have a choice between saving one person and saving every world. Send me home. I can't do that. I can do both! Spider-Man always... Not always. What about Uncle Ben? If not for Uncle Ben, most of us wouldn't be here. Stuart, we'd be remiss to not allow our resident superhero, superhero, tell us about Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse. So Spider-Man um, Across the Spider-Verse is uh, the sequel to 2018's Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, um, which is not from the usual MCU Disney channels that we're used to. This has come from Sony, um, who still own majority of the rights for the Spider-Man character. But it focuses more on the newer iteration of Spider-Man, who is Miles Morales. And so this focuses on catapulting into the multiverse, where they encounter a team of Spider-People from across the multiverse, charged with protecting the multiverse's existence. And then the heroes have to clash on how to handle a new threat, which uh, leads to Miles to enter a new narrative. Thanks very much, Stuart. Not that I understood anything of what you said there. <laughs> Vicky, how does this land for you as a Spider-Man film? I think I, I think when I spoke about Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, I just was... This is the new age of animation. Um, you know, we've had Pixar and it, it definitely made a movement in it. But when I saw Into the Spider-Verse, I was like, this is what can be done with cinema. And a lot of films this year have like taken that on. And, you know, you have the new... Puss in Boots, um, The Last Wish, and it, I definitely think there's very many similarities. But this animation style is is basically created a new wave, and I have to thank the Spider-Man films for this. But not even that; it's it's brought an incredible soundtrack. It's got it really makes you interested in what's happening. And I've had like a the downfall of Marvel is strong in, in me, but um, this is just it keeps me going. The emotions, the the kind of raw plot lines and everything all the voice actors are so hilarious and I'm just everything about what this is becoming is I'm really excited for it's like when I first started Marvel it's like those feelings are all flooding back Luke we have a top glittery cast of voice actors here does that make any kind of difference when you're really focused on the animation in films like this that's that's all, always what they say isn't it about animated film who who you know, does it really matter that we have star names in the cast? And for the large part, we don't. We've got Shamik Moore, um, who plays Miles Morales. I think the biggest name in the cast is Hayley Steinfeld coming back as Gwen Stacy. But I think Vicky really touches on it, that the animation is what makes this film stand out. You might be disappointed that there's a Spider-Man film atop our list of uh, films, given that we've had so many good um, independent and smaller budget films here, but you know, amid what, like 10 Spider-Man films over the past decade or so. We've had him popping up in Avengers films. This is not, in many respects, a Spider-Man film at all. I mean, not only are we we're not focusing on the Peter Parker character in favour of Miles Morales, we're eschewing many of the things that we think we know about the superhero film altogether. To sort of expand on this idea of the animation, it's not just that it's 
beautiful to look at, which it is, is that it's so impressionistic. People have, some critics have said that some of the animation feels unfinished because it doesn't look realistic. But in, there, there's sort of moments in the film that look like they're sort of painted by watercolour. It doesn't feel like a mainstream film at all, let alone a superhero film. Mark, we've got three directors, three writers, millions of dollars, a score of stars voicing lots of different characters. How does this hold itself together? I think by telling a a solid, coherent story that is not only following the journey of Miles, but actually reflecting on everything we know about this as a mythology and a mythos, you know, examining why in popular culture you almost take for granted certain elements of this, getting into issues of free will and destiny, you know, it's dealing with bigger themes and, you know, it's funny, uh, it's it's referential, uh, it's gorgeous to look at, everything about it screams quality. You know, I don't think we should be in any way ashamed of having this top of our list because it is an absolutely masterful piece of filmmaking uh, which absolutely left me gasping for wanting to know what's going to happen in the final part. Vicky, you're one of our reviewers who belong to the Cambridge Arts Picture House. Mm -hmm. You love to see the films which pack in the audiences, supporting our cinemas. Why do you think these big budget superhero films bring back the huge audiences time and time again many, many times a year? I think um, working in cinema, uh, I've seen What's happened recently is that, you know, you get less and less people booking out the for for the new releases of Marvel, but this is different. I think peop this heart to this, this is this animation, there's the a lot of people love the main character and love what I mean, everyone's grown up with Spider Man, but this exact Spider Man and this exact story is just it's exciting, it's thrilling, it's I remember having goosebumps within the first ten seconds of watching the Gwen Stacy scene launch and just thinking, I'm in for a real experience here and I just there's nothing compared to that I think when it comes to kind of superheroes for me now I think this is the franchise I'm going to be gone with for the next few years at least. Stuart tell the truth were you going to put this in your number one spot even if it wasn't that great because you wanted to see it win? I, I, I think for me personally when I saw the top 12 list revealed amongst us here at the Cambridge Film Show I was a gasp to discover that a superhero movie had made it to the top spot um, amongst such strong competition and for me I'm uh, I'm elated to see that still that the superhero genre still has a place in cinema and can still find not just an audience but also get such acclaim and recognition for being so well regarded and so well made in a time when we're seeing uh, the Marvel Cinematic Universe under Disney and, 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 and their subsidiary Marvel sort of waning and failing at the box office and getting poor critical reviews, seeing a standalone film um, from Sony, an animated film at that be so well regarded gives me great hope for this future of, 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 of superhero films and animated films in, in, and cinema in general and it's pleased me no end what I would say, though, is it does. It, I think it just shows as well that there are room for superhero movies that are not tied into huge cinematic universes. Granted, it's going to be a part of a, a trilogy with another film due uh, in the next year or so, a direct sequel to this, um, which has been tied up in itself with the strikes we've seen over Hollywood this year, as well as with major sort of uh, disputes with visual effects artists and animators, which have in turn further delayed the sequel and leaving many to think to themselves 
will their, their the sequel ever come out? Um, which would be disappointing if it didn't. I'm sure it will, um, and I look forward to it when it does. But I think yeah, it's just a, a huge thumbs up to to those who've put this forwards and made it and shown us how a superhero movie can be done properly with the right people behind it. Well, there you have it. The number one spot in the Cambridge Film Show Top 12 for 2023 went to Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse. Thanks to Luke, Vicky, Mark and Stu. And therein ends our mammoth Top 12 end of the year show. Thank you so much for listening, not just to this episode, but to all of the rest of ours across the year. Remember, you can find podcasts of our shows, including this one, if you'd like to listen all over again, on cambridge105.co.uk. And you can find the Cambridge Film Show on Instagram. We hope to see you in the new year. Our first show back is January the 6th. So join us again in 2024 for another full year jam-packed of excellent film review from the Cambridge Film Show on Cambridge 105 Radio.